Aristotle, Socrates, Kant, Hume, Kierkegaard, all consumed with the same question. What makes right and wrong? How do we define what is morally good and what is morally bad? Is it subjective or objective, internal or external, divine or human? The biblical book of Judges is a chronicle of what happened when each individual determined right and wrong for himself, when each one did what was right in his own eyes, when morality was in the eye of the beholder. April 29th, uh, 1992. Does that date ring a bell in anybody's mind? Some of you weren't alive quite yet. April 29th, 1992 was the day the Los Angeles riots sparked. Uh, I watched it live on TV from Phoenix. And for those of you who are not familiar with the L.A. riots, what happened was four police officers pulled over, four white police officers pulled over a black motorist named Rodney King and pulled him out of his vehicle and beat him within an inch of his life with billy clubs. I mean, the amount of times that they hit this man was just extraordinary. And even when he was incapacitated, they continued to beat him and beat him and beat him. And those four white police officers went on trial for use of excessive force against Rodney King. And the day that they were acquitted, despite video evidence, they were acquitted, all of the racial tension and all of the anger and angst and justifiable rage, in my opinion, began to bubble to the surface in the city of Los Angeles. Now, I understand, just a quick caveat, I understand how members of the city of Los Angeles, black, white, Mexican, yellow, red, green, striped, whatever, were angry with the situation. I feel like they were justified in their anger. However, here's my caveat. I don't think that they were justified necessarily in their behavior that came from that anger. Because what came from that anger when those four white police officers were acquitted is a group of people stormed the courtroom. They had to have riot police and SWAT police out to prevent people from coming into the courtroom. They began to burn down businesses, commercial and residential. I mean, they were in entire neighborhoods in Los Angeles that were on fire. I mean, it was billions of dollars in damage when all was said and done. Uh, in Koreatown in Los Angeles, these Korean shop owners who had never even seen a gun before actually went out and bought guns and learned how to use them in order to defend themselves. And I watched on live television. This was televised on live TV as a 13-year-old kid. These shop owners in Koreatown with weapons hiding behind cars like it was a video game or something and pulling the trigger and you can hear it, pow, 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 shots ring out trying to defend themselves. And there was a moment on live TV that was really the epitome of the chaos that ensued in the Los Angeles riots when a man named Reginald Denny, who was a truck driver, was driving his 18-wheeler just trying to do his job through downtown Los Angeles in the Compton kind of Crenshaw area 
And the riots had gone so crazy and people had gone so off the rails and the looting was so crazy and the violence was so crazy that four black men began to throw objects at Reginald Denny's vehicle and rendered it incapacitated. So Reginald Denny's 18-wheeler was now parked in the middle of this intersection and it was not functioning. And they threw enough bricks at the window and things at the window that he could no longer see through the window. And these four black men came up and opened the door and pulled an innocent man out of his car. A man who had nothing to do with the riots, a man who had nothing to do with the acquittal, a man who had nothing to do with the original incident, a man who was only trying to do his job. They pulled him out of his car and began to beat him in the middle of the intersection. And by that time, the riots were so crazy that the chief of police in Los Angeles said, no police, go help him because you're rendering yourself in danger. You're putting yourself in danger if you go help him. So we just watched on live television this helpless man and nobody was going to come help him being beaten within an inch of his life. There was a time where he was laying on the ground on all fours and a man came up and just swiftly kicked him right in the face and he went down to the ground and then another man ran up and took a brick and in close range, a brick about the size of that speaker and threw it at his face and exploded his face. I mean, he was dying and bleeding on the ground. And I'm watching it live. The great news is that just across the street, there was another man watching it live. And he recognized that he was sitting in a room in the very intersection where that thing was taking place. So he left his room and he walked out to the middle of the street, put himself in danger, picked up Reginald Denny and put him back in his vehicle. And a fellow truck driver got into Reginald Denny's truck, got it started again, and drove him to the hospital, leaned out the left side of the car like this because he still couldn't see through the windshield and saved Reginald Denny's life. When we think about the story of the book of Judges, I want you to picture moments like this in your mind. Because we read the story of Judges and we read about the chaos and we read about the violence and we think that's 3,500 years ago and that could never happen here and it could never happen now. I watched it happen on live TV in 1992. And it still happens when we so descend into moral depravity and the wheels come completely off and each one does what's right in his own eyes. Morality becomes in the eye of the beholder rather than in the eye of the divine or in the eye of some objective third party. And, and things just descend into chaos and violence that quickly. And in the middle of that chaos and violence, God tends to raise up heroes and he's going to raise one up again today remember where we are in our study in the book of judges that in those days there was no king in israel there was no human king but there was no divine king either they weren't paying attention to god at all each one was doing what was right in his own eyes and the nation of israel was descending into chaos just as los angeles descended into chaos april 29th 1992 and what happens is that the nation of israel gets caught in this cycle and the cycle of disobedience or the cycle of oppression or whatever looks like this 
Israel serves God and then they sin. And when they sin, I don't mean something like small, whatever. They worship the God of fertility. And that means that they're sacrificing infants. That means that there's ritual prostitution going on. And God is not happy with that, nor would you be. And so God sends a foreign captor to enslave them. And then Israel eventually gets tired of that. They cry out to God and God raises up a judge in order to deliver them. They begin to serve God again and they enter into the cycle again. Now, I've got to have a little quiz for you this morning. You've got to participate with me here because this is going to make a difference here in a minute as we take a look at uh, the story of Gideon. When Israel cries out to God, he raises up a, say it with me. When Israel cries out to God, he raises up a, and the result is, when Israel cries out to God, he raises up a, and the result is, Mark that in the back of your mind. We'll get back there here in a few minutes. Remember where we've come from so far. Kushan Rishathaim, so fun to say, has oppressed Israel for eight years. And in Othniel, Othniel a judge, uh, rescued Israel and the land had peace for 40. Eglon oppressed Israel for 18 years. Ehud rescued Israel and there was peace in the land for 80 years. The Philistines oppressed Israel. Shamgar, who was a judge, has a very brief mention in the book of Judges. We didn't look at him. We don't know how long these, uh, the, the Philistines oppressed them or how long Shamgar's judgeship uh, lasted. The Bible doesn't mention it. Then Jabin, remember Jabin from last week? We wanted him to be named Jason because Jabin is a stupid name. And he was uh, 20 years oppressed Israel. And then Deborah, her judgeship lasted for 40 years and land had peace for 40 years. So we are at least a couple of hundred years into this cycle, right? And you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. The nation of Israel is completely insane. Watch, because here's what happened in Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> is this starting to sound like a broken record to any of the rest of you? It's like, I think we've read this so far once. Yes, in Judges 1, and two, and three, and four, and five, and here we are in chapter six. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil inside of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into hands of, in the hands of Midian for seven years. And this gets so bad now, listen to me, this is crazy, because the nation of Israel actually begins to dig holes and tunnels into the ground. They're no longer building their homes above ground. They're hiding from Midian and from the Amalekites by digging holes into the ground. And what the Bible tells us is that this nation of Midian and the Amalekites would come in and absolutely destroy Israel's crops. You know, Israel had things planted. They had soy and they had kale. They ate a lot of kale back then. And they had all these things planted out there. That's a joke. They had all these things planted out there. And what would happen is Midian and the Malachites would come in and they would take all of their camels and all of their horses and everything and just completely... It, it, the Bible says it was like locusts had come through. So the nation of Israel is starving. They're living in holes in the ground because of Midian's oppression. And so when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sends for them a what? And the result is, because when Israel cries out, let's look at our cycle again. When Israel cries out, the Lord sends a, and the result is, so when the nation of Israel cries out to the Lord, next slide, the Lord sends for them a, uh, who? Oh, what? I've got a buddy named, uh, I've got a buddy named Tim. He works at Stouffville Toyota. I, I drive a Toyota. I, I brought my car into Tim one time to get it fixed because something was wrong with it. It was making the tick, 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 you know, sound or whatever it was. It didn't sound quite right, right? So I bring it into Tim and he says, okay, you got it. We'll fix it. And an hour later, Tim called me. And he said, uh, hey, we've got your car. We've taken a look at it. And I said, great, what's wrong? And he said, you drive this car pretty hard, don't you? 
I said, well, it doesn't matter. I called, I called you fix the car, right? He goes, is there a lot of stress going on in your life? I mean, what's, what's going on at work? Things okay with AIM? You know, because you're driving this car pretty hard. I said, you know, I called you to fix the car, not to be my therapist. Like, what is, what is happening here? I'm not going to owe you any kind of explanation. Fix the car! See, what happens is the nation of Israel cries out for a deliverer because they want relief from their oppressor. And God comes along and says, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is not the deal. Anytime you cry out, I'm just going to bail you out of this situation. Listen to what the prophet, God's truth teller, says when the nation of Israel cries out. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. Next slide. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. And then the prophet just stops. Fix my car. Stop driving it so hard. Bail me out of this situation. How about you start obeying? That's what God says. See, here's the first thing that we learn from even the story of Gideon. Before God raises him up even in the situation that the nation of Israel is in. That sometimes when it comes to you and to me and even the nation of Israel, you may want relief, but God wants restoration. You cry out to God because your financial life is in ruin, because your marriage is tough, because your kids have gone off the rails, because your mental life is in shambles. And you're going, oh God, please help me. Oh God, please relieve me. Oh God, please take the edge off. And God sends a truth teller into your life that says, engage in biblical community, obey me, do what it is I told you to do because I desire complete restoration in your life when all you want is relief. All you want is for me to take the pain away, but that's not my job to take the pain away. My job is to see you develop into a fully functioning follower of Christ. So we want God to take the edge off, but we want, don't want to do any work, right? We don't want to do the obedient stuff. We don't want to become people who are discovering life connected to God and others. We don't want to be people who are dedicated to God's word and prayer. We don't want to be people who are declaring the good news about Jesus every time we turn around or demonstrating the good news in all of life. We don't want to be people who systematically reorganize our life to reflect the character and priorities of Jesus. We just want to sit here and hear a nice little sermon and hear some good jokes and hear some great worship and walk away and do a different thing. And do whatever it is we want to do. But God comes along and says, I don't want relief for you. That's not my number one priority. That's in there. And he's going to get to a judge here in a minute that's going to bring relief. So don't panic. We're going to get there. But what God does first is sends a prophet. Man, don't you love when God pulls the string a little bit on us, you know? Oh, God, send me relief. And he sends a truth teller. Did you notice the truth teller doesn't even tell them how to fix it? He says, I, I pulled you out of Egypt. I did all these things for you, but you haven't obeyed. And then he just walks away. There's not even an action step. Israel is left going. So I bring my car in to get fixed and you tell me it's my fault? Yes. Yes. Because when you want relief, God in his heart wants restoration for you. That's a little bit harder, isn't it? It's a little bit more difficult. It's going to require something from you. It reveals to us a little bit of the heart of God for you and for me. But God still is going to raise up a judge. So the angel of the Lord 
came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. This is not Ophrah Winfrey. This is not, this is not, you know, you get a judge and you get a judge and everybody gets a judge. You know, that's not that Ophrah, right? Which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon, that's our judge today, was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Now, the very first time we meet Gideon, this is really fantastic, he's beating out wheat in a wine press. Now, it might not make any difference to you, like, oh, okay, whatever it is he's doing. But listen, this is how you beat out wheat. You got, got all the wheat, you've harvested all the wheat, and you've got chaff which you don't want, and you've got wheat kernels, which you do want. And you take a pitchfork, and you stab it, and you take a bunch of it, and you throw it up in the air like that. And the chaff is really light. It's really flaky. It's dried out. You don't want that. So the wind comes through, and it blows the chaff away. But the wheat kernels are heavier, so they just drop right back down to the ground. Stab it, throw it up. Wind blows it away. Wheat kernels to the ground. Stab it, throw it up. You ever see that? You ever picture that, farmers doing this? Can you picture that? Right? Throwing up in the air, chaff blows away, wheat kernels drop to the ground. And so the best place to do that is out in the open, where you're going to have wind blowing through, right? But Gideon is not doing it out in the open. He's doing it in a wine press. And a wine press is, is dug into the ground. So he is under the ground. He's into the ground, and the sky is up here, and he's beating out wheat in a wine press where there would not be wind blowing through to help him separate the wheat from the chaff. Because a wine press is a place where they put grapes in, right? And people go through and then the bare feet, they stomp all the grapes. Side note, real quick, side note. You know you can pay for that experience, right? You, you pay money and then you take off your shoes and socks and you step on grapes and squash them. You have such a great time. And then afterwards, they serve you wine <laughs> that someone else... You know, I'm getting notes of cherry and tobacco and feet. I'm getting notes, notes of feet. Yes, there are notes of feet in there because someone else stepped on those grapes. It's good use of your money. Um, so here's Gideon in this wine press threshing out the wheat. Why? Because he's afraid. He's afraid. We're going to see this over and over in Gideon's life. But the Lord said to Gideon... Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? So I've now chosen you, Gideon. I've chosen you to be the judge that provides deliverance from this oppressor of Midian. And Gideon responds this way. He says to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. This is very fascinating because this angel of the Lord who has come to Gideon, most commentators, scholars, you know, kind of Bible experts would say that this is not necessarily an angel as we would think of an angel with like wings and the whole thing. This is a pre-incarnate Jesus that comes to Gideon. So before Jesus was born, you know, uh, 2,000 years ago, he still existed because he's eternally existed in the past. So this is a pre-incarnate Christ that has come to Gideon and is saying, I am sending you. So he is talking to Jesus before Jesus had a body. And Jesus says, go save your people. He's talking to a divine being. Go save your people from Midian. And Gideon goes, now, I may be interested, but can you show me a sign? You're talking to a divine being. And he says, show me a sign. I'm going, Gideon, you're talking to Jesus before Jesus was born. That should be enough of a sign. But it's not for Gideon. So he goes and bakes a couple of cakes. He brings back a little bit of goat. He puts it on a rock. And the 
messenger of God, pre-incarnate Christ likely that he's talking to, takes a staff, touches it, and the whole thing burns up. Right, the, the 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 bread burns up, and the goat burns up, and the, and the stone burns up. Everything burns up. Then Gideon, next slide, perceived that it was the angel of the Lord. Great. Now he knows. I believe you now. And Gideon said, "Alas, O Lord God!" Interestingly enough, you don't get this in the English, but in the original language, this is an expression of fear. He's scared of this angel. And this is an inappropriate, overly emotional response. We're going to see exactly that here in a minute based on the angel's response or this pre-incarnate Christ, this messenger of God. This word angel, by the way, um, could also be translated messenger of God. So that's why we know it's a pre-incarnate Christ, or at least that's the theory, right? So alas, or God, he's, he's afraid. For now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace to you. Do not fear. You're not going to die. In other words, Gideon Calm down, brother. Like, your response of fear is inappropriate here. It was inappropriate when you're beating out wheat in a wine press, and it's inappropriate now. Don't be afraid. Calm down. Gideon calms down, and God gives him a charge through this messenger. And he says, tonight, uh, uh, the Lord said to him, that night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Stop there. Felt like it's very, very interesting that Israel has already cried out to Yahweh and yet they still have false gods among them. Do you see that? Man, are we like this. They're hedging their bets, right? Just in case Yahweh doesn't come through, we want to keep Baal and Asherah around because maybe they will come through. We're going to cry out to Yahweh, but we're not going to destroy these other things because just in case Yahweh doesn't come through, we want something to fall back on. And God says to Gideon, well, the first thing you want to do is eliminate false worship, eliminate false gods. So tear down Baal and Asherah that's in your father's house. And then, next slide, build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. And then, next slide... So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Pre-incarnate Jesus tells Gideon, go tear down these false gods and build an altar to Yahweh. And he goes, got it. How's 2.30 a.m. sound? Because I'm too what? Scared. He's just scared. He's just scared. He's just scared. This is the pattern that we'll see in Gideon's life. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon because even in the midst of Gideon's fear, God is still gracious, right? God is still raising him up. God is still going to save his people from the oppressor. And, Gideon, and he charges Gideon. And the good news is about this situation is that, you know, the next morning when everybody wakes up, uh, all the men of the town are like, who did this? Who tore down the Baal and the Asherah? This is not good. It was Joash's kid, Gideon. And everybody's going to go kill Gideon. And Joash, thank God, goes, hey, 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 wait, everybody. Why are we after Gideon? If Baal is real and Asherah is real, don't you think they can defend themselves? We don't have to defend them. Everybody goes, all right, we'll let Gideon go. So Gideon is let go. And then Gideon said to God about this particular uh, charge that he has, now that he's torn down Baal and Asherah and established worship of true God, now it's go after the oppressor, Midian. He says, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. 
If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. You see this word right here? If you do this, then I'm going to, we're back to conditional faith, aren't we? We're back to conditional faith. I'll only do it if you perform this sign for me. And how obscure is this sign that he's asking for? I'm going to take a fleece of wool. I'm going to put it out on the ground. I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to get up the next morning. And I want there to be dew on the fleece and nothing on the ground. What kind of stupid thing is that? Like what? It's just so random, don't you think? It's just odd. And God's going... Okay, I've already destroyed these gods before you. I've already burnt this thing up that you brought to me. I've already showed up to you as the pre-incarnate Christ. What more signs do you need? But God is gracious, so he does it. Gideon wakes up the next morning, and it's dry as a bone on the ground. He goes over to the fleece, and he wrings out the dew. So the next thing that Gideon should do is what? Obey. Does Gideon obey? No obey. Then Gideon said to God, if, uh, let not your anger burn against me. <laughs> I'm so sorry because every time I read it, every time I read it. Okay, this is the modern translation. Are you ready? It's the NLT, New, New Lucas translation. This is, this is the modern translation. Let not your anger burn against me. Promise you won't be mad. That's the new. T- you ever have a friend say that to you? Okay, listen, promise you won't be mad, but... Or your children, does your children, your children ever say that to you? Oh, Dad, promise you won't be mad. Why? Well, I'm already mad because I know that whatever it is you're about to say to me, you should not be saying to me. You know what I mean? Promise you won't be mad, but I painted your car. You know what I mean? It's like promise, promise you won't be mad, you know, but like whatever. It's like let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Okay. Please let it be dry on the fleece, and on all the ground let there be dew. This guy is so stupid. Like, I'm so frustrated with Gideon because he just reverses the thing, right? He's not even creative enough to come up with a new sign. Like, turn that tree into a dragon. Like, something. I don't know. Something. And he's like, maybe this time... The fleece could be dry. And God goes, all right. So then the fleece is dry and the dew is on the ground around. Here's the deal. Here's what a Bible scholar named Kalos and Younger says. Very brilliant man. And he sums up Gideon's problem in one sentence. He says, Gideon's problem was a matter of willingness because of his tremendous obsessive fear. He was so extraordinarily afraid of the people in his town. He's afraid of the Midianites. He's afraid even of himself. He's afraid of what God is calling him to do. He's afraid. So he's debilitated. He's hamstrung. He's frozen. And even though God has charged him, and even though the pre-incarnate Jesus has showed up to him, and even though God has told him, and even though God has called him to respond, and even though God has shown him multiple signs, two of which I think are pretty stupid... And God is gracious enough to do it. He's still not doing anything. Here's what it comes down to is that Gideon was a coward. Gideon was a coward. Now, I've got a very good friend who's a pastor here in the greater Toronto area. And he's actually preached on platform here before. He's a fantastic human being, a great guy. And he has a son named Gideon. Now, when I met his kids, 
the first thing that popped into my head was Gideon was a coward. But you don't say that out loud to your friend. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't remind them of these things, right? So I kept it to myself until we had our second child and named him Canaan. Now, Canaan was the land of promise that the nation of Israel was told to go in and possess that God had promised to them. And so before they began to possess the land, the land was a pagan land that worshipped Baal and Asherah and ritual prostitution and child sacrifice and all that stuff. That was the land of Canaan. So when I told my friend, whose name I won't mention, it's VJ, um, <laughs> I told him, I said, oh, congratulations, you got a new baby, what'd you name him? I said, we named him Canaan. First words out of his mouth, no word of a lie. You know that was a pagan land, right? <laughs> and you know what I said? <laughs> Gideon was a coward. Boom! And you tell your son that. But the great news about both Canaan and Gideon is that the New Testament gives us a picture of what God had kind of designed for both Canaan and for Gideon. Now watch this. This is brilliant. The author of Hebrews writes this about the land of Canaan. For if Joshua had given them rest, if God, if God had used Joshua to lead them into this land of rest, this land of Canaan, which he did not, Joshua did not, they did not completely possess the land. If that had happened, then God would not have spoken of another day later on. So if we had completed it back then, there wouldn't be anything to look forward to. So then there remains yet a new Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest had also rested from his works as God did from his. In other words, this picture of the land of Canaan in the Old Testament becomes now for the believer this picture of total rest in Christ. Where there will be one day where all things will be made new and there are no tears and no pain and no suffering. And we can rest from our striving and cease working to please God and just simply rest in Christ who did it for us and enter into that spiritual land of promise, that land of Canaan, right? Right. This is what the New Testament helps us to, to, to reveal and understand. So we named our son Canaan. See? Biblical defense. Now what does the New Testament say about Gideon? Now watch this. This is why I'm wrong about Gideon being a coward. I don't know about wrong. It happens so rarely. What more shall I say, the author of Hebrews says, for time will fail me to tell of Gideon. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, if you know anything about the rest of these guys, they aren't great guys either. And Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice and obtained promises and stopped the mouths of lions. Does that sound like a coward to you? I mean, I'm going, how is it that the author of Hebrews talks about Gideon like this? Gideon's not this guy. Gideon's threshing wheat in a wine press. Gideon's doing things in the middle of the night that God called him to because he's afraid of people. Uh, Gideon's asking for sign after sign after stupid sign. Because he's a coward. But see, when God first appears to Gideon to call him to be his judge and deliverer, listen to what God says to Gideon. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, and everybody say these words with me, O mighty man of valor. I could just see Gideon going, Who? (laughs) 
You can't be talking to me. In fact, he does. He responds to God and he's like, well, I'm the runt of my tribe and I'm from the smallest tribe. Here's all the reasons you cannot be talking to me. I'm threshing out wheat in a wine press. You can't be talking to me. See, here's the great news about God, men and women, that God calls you courageous when all you feel is fear. When all you feel is fear. I can't tell my family I'm a Christian. If I'm going to tear down false gods in my life, it's got to be in the middle of the night where they don't even know. I can't step out and tell somebody about Jesus and share a verbal witness. I'm too afraid. I'm too scared. See, God sees beyond that. God sees past that. God sees the potential inside of you that comes out when Christ takes hold and the Spirit of God clothes you. God sees your courage when all you feel is fear. There's some of you that are terrified to obey God in your business because if you do, you think your business is going to suffer. So you are too afraid to obey God. And God comes along and goes, I know that all you feel is fear, but I call you courageous, O mighty man of valor. There are some of you that are too afraid to end that relationship because you know it's not healthy. But you're afraid that if I end this relationship, that I'm not going to meet somebody else. I'm not going to find somebody else or whatever. And God comes along and says, oh, mighty man or woman of valor, I call you courageous when all you feel is fear. I can use you if you render up to me whatever little that you have, even in the midst of your fear. This is not a pull yourself up by the bootstraps and ignore your fear. I know you're afraid. You know, that the Bible doesn't even make this moral statement about Gideon. You know, he was afraid of what the people in the town might do when he tore down Baal and Asherah. And what an idiot he is. You know, I've said that a bunch of times, but the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible just says it. Doesn't make a moral judgment about it. It's like you might be even scared of your family to tell them about your newfound faith in Christ. And God goes, yeah, I get it. I get it. But you know what I see beyond that? And I call you courageous when all you feel is fear. And here's the deal. Gideon finally steps out. And 32,000 men of Israel step out with him. And God comes along and goes, that's too many. And he said, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell all of them, all 32,000, if anyone is afraid, they can leave. And Gideon's going, does that include me too? Because... I, I, can, I can leave too, right? 22,000 walk away. They're down to 10,000. And God says, it's still too many. So I want you to take them down to the river, and some of them are going to drink like this, and some of them are going to drink like this. And the ones who drink like this, you put them over here, and the ones who drink like this, you put them over here. So 9,700 drink like this, and he puts them over here. And the other, 90, and the other 300 kind of drink like this, and he puts them over here. And so Gideon goes, okay, that's not too bad. We were 10,000. We had 300. We're down to 9,700. Not too bad. And God goes, no, 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 the 9,700 you dismiss. Send them home. So Gideon's down to 300. Gideon's down to 300 men. And what he's about to come up against in the Midianites and the Amalekites are this. Look at this. That they were like locusts in abundance. Their camels were without number, like the sand on the seashore in abundance. I love Gideon's story because Gideon's story is really a story of growth, isn't it? I mean, he's afraid to start with. He's threshing out wheat in a wine press because he's afraid of the Midianites. And the next thing you know, he's about to take these 300 men and do what God called him to do. I mean, God was gracious with them and patient with them and he walked with them and he worked with them. And the next thing you know, instead of 
living out of this fear that he feels, Gideon begins to live out of the courage that God has called him into. Man, this is about to get cool. Watch this. Watch what happens. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. That's the middle of the night, like two o'clock in the morning. When they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Keep going. And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars they had in their left hands and the torches in their right hands and the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. Now, (laughs) I want you to try something for me. At some point in this week, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, those of you who are married, get up and sneak out of bed and get a trumpet and a torch and a jar. And come back in your room, light something on fire, smash the jar, and blow the trumpet, and yell at the top of your lungs, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon, and just see what happens. (laughs) We offer marriage counseling here throughout the week that you may want to avail yourself of. Same thing that would happen in your house happens in the house of the Midianites and the Amalekites. Watch this. Uh, Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, uh, the Lord set every man's sword against comrade and all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth, I can't say that in church, towards Zerahah, and as far as the border of Abel, Meholah, and Tabath. So all of a sudden, this chaos ensues, and things are going really crazy, and they turn their swords on one another. And the armies of the Midianites and the Amalekites kill one another. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. And that day, God delivered with 300 men and a coward named Gideon, his people from the hand of the Midianites. Now, some of us, not all of us, but some of us would aspire to be a hero like that in the eyes of God, would aspire to step up and do something courageous and do something world-changing. For those of you who are like, I'm not really that guy, God wants you to be that guy or gal. God loves that. God loves to use people and even you to be a world changer and maybe somebody who changes the globe, but maybe somebody who just changes the world for one person because you step out in courageous faith. But look, courageous faith, world change, deliverance, stories like this don't start with us going, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get over my fear. I'm just going to step out of it. That's, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. That's not where it starts. Where, what was the first thing that God commanded Gideon to do? Say, look, I'm going to save my people through the, from the hand of the Midianites, and I'm going to use you. What did he say? Amass an army and go after them? No. What did he say? Look what he said. Look what he said. Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, pull down the altar of Baal. That's the first thing you do. That's step one. Then cut down the Asherah. Cut down all the false gods in your life and then build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here. You see, here's what God is saying to Gideon. He's saying to you and me that heroism begins with worship. See, we don't start with getting past our fear, getting, pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, or I'm just going to do this for God. It begins with recognizing God as the true God, that he is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he is glorious and exalted above all things, and there is nobody like him, there'll never be anyone like him. And the train of his robe fills the temple, and we just step back in awe of God and go, God, I can't believe who you are, and you are so exalted, and you're so different than me, and you are so above all that I can 
could ever imagine or dream. And you are only worthy of my worship. And every other false god in my life can be torn down to the nubs and burned in light of who you are. Now watch, this is why Jesus in the New Testament says this. He says, don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. He says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now I say that like that because some people use this verse as a weapon, right? Like you should fear God because he might send you to hell. Like, this is, not the, this is not the nature of the heart of God that Jesus is trying to communicate. You know how I know that? Let's just read the next verse, shall we? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of people who can take your body. Don't be afraid. You know, you fear God, worship God. Why? Because watch this. Because aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Two sparrows, the most insignificant animal in first century Palestine. You could get two for a penny. We don't even have pennies anymore. You could get two of them. Are not one of them going to fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Some more than others. You know who you are. <laughs> Jesus says, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. In other words, when we desire to do something great for the kingdom, it always starts with worship of the true God. It always starts with tearing down those false gods in our life, those false gods of consumerism, false gods of money, false gods of power, false gods of popularity, false gods of sexuality. Whatever that is, we begin to tear those false gods down and exalt the true God in our life. And all of a sudden, God pulls us out of fear and into courage to step into something great because we see him in light of who he truly is. We're going to conclude with this because I love the story of Corey Ten Boom. If you know the story of Corey Ten Boom, she was a young Christian girl, about 14 years old, in her home country of the Netherlands when the Nazis came in and began to take over. And they began to grab Jews and send them to concentration camps. So Corey Ten Boom in her little women's Bible study, you know, she was a watchmaker too, Corey Ten Boom. Do you know that? She made watches. Isn't that cool? I'd love, if anybody has a Corey Ten Boom watch, I'd love one. Beside the point. Point is this. Corrie ten Boom and her family began to hide Jews in their house. Hide them away from the Nazis. And then when the Nazis came in and began to arrest Christians, they arrested Corrie ten Boom and her family as well and sent them to a concentration camp. This is Corrie ten Boom up here on the screen. I want you to meet Corrie ten Boom. This is her when she was a young gal, and this is her in her 90s. Corrie ten Boom lived a very long time. And when they were sent to a concentration camp, Corrie ten Boom, about a week later, got a little note from her friend, and it says, Dear Corrie, all the watches in your house are safe. In other words, all the Jews that you are hiding in the walls are still safe, even though you are in a concentration camp. And I start to wonder, like a 14-year-old girl, courageous enough, courageous enough to hide Jews, to risk her own life, to step into danger. These people that were courageous enough to risk their own life, to go out to the middle of an intersection and pull a trucker off the ground, put him back into his truck. Like, where does that start? And Corey Ten Boom gives us a clue. Listen to what Corey Ten Boom says. It is not my ability, but my response to God's ability that counts. Don't you love that? See, this is not about me thinking that I can do something for God. 
This is not about me getting over my fear. This is not me sitting in my room going, man, I got to be less afraid. I got to be less afraid. That's negative action. What we want is proactivity and proactive people go before God and we say, God, you are the only one to be worshiped. And when we worship the true God, what it means is the fear in our hearts begins to get squashed and we can step up to be heroes in the kingdom of God. Men and women, God calls you courageous when all you feel is fear. And he can use you just like he used Gideon, just like he used Corey Ten Boom, just like he's using people in this congregation and all across the greater Toronto area to do extraordinary things for the kingdom of God. Because you, in his eyes, are courageous. And Canaan and Gideon are both very legitimate names for boys. I also want you to know that. Let's pray. God, thank you for seeing beyond the fear that we feel. Thank you that even when we are overcome by that, even when we are, uh, feel like we are drowning in fear and, and debilitated by fear, you see the courage that's inside of us that you put there. You clothe us with your spirit and you even offer us a solution when we feel terrified and that solution is simply true worship. Calling out to you, even as we're gonna do now, that we need you. Oh God, we need you. Every hour we need you. God, thank you for the story of Gideon that we can look back now 3,000 years after the fact and see how you took a coward and by your grace walked with him step by step. By your grace, when he asked for stupid signs, you still gave them to him because of your passion for your people, because of your desire and commitment to deliverance, and because you are willing to use even the runt of the litter to do your will. And now we even have this story in Hebrews, this comment from the author of Hebrews about how can I even tell of Gideon? I don't even have enough time to tell of the ways that God turned a coward into a hero because of true worship and because of, God, your grace. May we feel empowered and courageous as we leave this place today. And God's people together said, amen.